Do you believe what scriptures say about Jesus Christ, or are you skeptical? Have you fallen away from church and religious practice, or never affiliate in the first place? Or are you still there but with many questions or doubts? Some things have to be taken on faith, but we've been given the gifts of miracles to touch our hearts and minds, and what we do from there is the choice we have to make. I'm Sheila Logminas, and you're in the Forum. Many years, the Catholic Church has seen many members fall away or attend Mass less often, and that was before COVID. It may be fair to say they weren't well catechized and didn't know well the church they were leaving, nor many of the teachings of the church and even the language, sacramental language, liturgical language, things like the Triduum of Holy Week, Eucharistic Adoration, and a lot else. Many Catholics didn't or don't have answers for questions when challenged by unbelievers or those who fell away even. So they fell away themselves. How about you? How would you, how would you do if asked, oh yeah, says who, so what? Yikes, that can be challenging indeed, which is why we need to know and practice our faith well. Joining me to talk about all this and more is my longtime friend and colleague, Chuck Neff, longtime newsman, radio show host, author, and executive producer of Salt River Productions. Chuck, welcome back. It's great to talk with you again. Well, Sheila, great to talk to you. Uh, thanks for inviting me to join you today. It's great to talk with you again. I mean, last time we were both on, uh, on a network radio program, uh, last time you were on my show, but this is my show now, and uh, you're doing other things. You're doing a lot with Salt River Productions, but you also authored a new book. We'll get into that here in a little bit about marriage and why marriage is so important as a, a topic and a sacrament as we know it uh, as Catholics, why that is so important to talk about, but that's part of our conversation. So what about the first things I said? I, you know, Chuck, that always stuck with me from a priest friend's homily many years ago um, about when he brought up, oh yeah, says who, so what? Well, well, since then and now, we have far more cynicism in the culture. We have far more, not just young people or young adult people, but people in general who either fell away or just didn't believe in the first place, who might, some people might be likely to have a grown adult son or daughter who says that to them. Oh yeah, says who, so what? And we've got to have answers for that, not just, well, because I say so, or because this is what we were always taught and what you were always taught and my, our grandparents were always taught and our ancestors were always taught. So that's not going to do it. So we have to have those answers. What were you thinking when I, when I brought that up, that, that a priest said that in a homily? Well, <laughs> it, um, it reminds me of um, Jesus Christ is either who he says he is or he is not. Mm. There is no gray area here. If I believe in Jesus and you don't, either I am right and you are wrong or you are right and I am wrong. There is no gray area when it comes to, to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember some years ago on, on a radio program I was hosting and we had a caller in who was an atheist and uh, he was going on and on and all of typical arguments. And um, I finally said to him, I said, you know, uh, there's going to be one day when one of us is going to be bitterly disappointed. <laughs> and, and it's true. 
I mean, um, it just reminds me that um, if we're uh, if we believe in Jesus Christ, uh, we are either right or we are either wrong. Uh, we might not be right or we might not be wrong, but we 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 are not that. We are either correct or we are incorrect. You know, Chuck, that's really good Good that you brought that up, and I'm glad you did, because I just uh, wrote a little blog post about that the other day when I had a, a podcast with Father Robert Spitzer, but we were talking about the, the nature of proof and when people want proof, and, and so when I wrote a blog post to sort of point to that podcast, I thought, what do I say here? to open up this little blurb, this little sort of few paragraphs about the conversation with fathers. So people will go listen to that. And immediately Pascal's wager came to me. So uh, people should look that up. Pascal's wager. So you eat what you just said. So who stands to lose the most? The one who says, you know, I'm going to live according to my not believing in any of that. And I'm going to live my life according to that. And if in the end, when you die, you're the one who's wrong, and the one who says, I believe in all of it, and I'm going to try to live my life according to my belief in eternity, I will be, we all will be judged, and we will either have heaven or hell in the end, based on how we lived our life and that final judgment and all that. I'm going to live that way. Who stands to lose if, well, you were wrong, and it's just nothing? Or the person who lived as if it's just nothing, and they didn't care, and they lived accordingly. That's Pascal's wager. And if you ask me, that really ought to get a lot of people thinking. Yeah. I have a, a, a very, very good friend out on the West Coast who is a, a self-described atheist. I do not see mm. him very often, <laughs> uh, but I often wonder if we um, had a conversation today, what would, I, what would I tell him about what I believe? And he would tell me, well, he can't see God and, you know, he doesn't believe in that. And I just, I stop and think, you know, uh, at nighttime, um, we can't see the sun on the other side of the world, but that doesn't mean that the sun is not there. And, on, and on cloudy days when we can't see the sun, that doesn't mean that the sun is not up there somewhere. So even though we can't quote unquote see everything, it doesn't mean that, that whatever we're looking for is not there. And uh, I just think about that often. Um, even on cloudy nights, it doesn't mean that the stars aren't up there. Even on, in the broad daylight, when we, uh, when we look up into the sky, we can't see the stars. That doesn't mean they're not there. And uh, I've just come to believe that, uh, that God is with us everywhere, even when we, uh, quote, uh, can't see him. And the Catholic Church has a rich tradition Chuck, for as we know, a lot of Catholics even don't know this, but the, the rich tradition that goes very, very far back in the sciences, in, in faith and reason, in proof, and, and more and more all the time it accelerates the more science and technology can can find out. You can talk to that. You're going to talk about that, about the Shroud of Turin, for instance, how much more in more recent times can be even proven with the the high advances in technology about that. And that is so jaw-droppingly fascinating. It's just awesome. But but there's there are literally peer-reviewed studies in science with evidence of a soul from medical studies, evidence of God's existence from science, I mean, I've only learned about this through some interviews, and especially with Father Spitzer, as I said, proofs of God, proof of God's existence from from philosophy, and, and some of that it, he uses um, conversations about after uh, near death experiences, and you know, talk about goosebumps. You, you hear enough of those, and there are many of those, and all most of these people report the exact same experiences in near death experiences. 
And, and, but then one of the things he brings up often, Chuck, is you're, you got expert, you've got the expertise in this. You did the Holy Winding Sheet with Salt River Productions. And that's about the Shroud of Turin. And that's the, the proof and evidence we have from the Shroud and how incredibly that image was put on that cloth. So all, there is evidence for this we can point to. And, and you, as you say correctly, we don't see the, the sun at night. It's on the other side of you know, our, glo our globe. And we don't see the moon in the day. But that doesn't mean you don't see a lot of things that are there. So that's just not your reason or not a correct reason. But the church has the ability to give answers for these things now more than ever. Yeah, and I think, too, that uh, some people just don't want the answers. Uh, they, they're uh, into their own little agenda, their mindset or whatever. And I just think that, you know, they're not open to, to exploring it. They're not open to looking at uh, what might be true and about what we say in, in the Catholic faith and the reality of God, the reality of the risen Jesus Christ. And, um, yeah, I just uh, think, uh, think uh, we just don't want to – I don't think we're open Sheila, I don't think we're open to what might be. And mm. gosh, are we missing so much? In the not in the not being open area, especially for people who are well, both and never been in the church or fallen away from the church. Chuck, do you think it's just because they don't want to believe it's true? I mean, it's just so much more convenient to, to live life today for your, uh, I don't know, convenience, your pleasure, the things you can seek for happiness, but nobody's ever happy, so they seek more until they come back to you know, the transcendent. Yeah. Well, when you, when you run out of options and, uh, <laughs> and I think especially as uh, you get a little bit older, you start looking at, uh, at the transcendence and saying, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Maybe, maybe there's something to this. Well, so let, let's talk about the, the something to this in the Easter Triduum, because it's explaining even that, I think a lot of people don't know what the Triduum is. Of course, there are those who would never miss a day of those three days, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and, and the Vigil Mass of Easter Sunday on Saturday night in most churches. And then, Chuck, last year during the pandemic of 2020, I mean, we're still in it, but during 2020, churches were closed. But now, most churches are having some sort of services for the Triduum. Let's talk for a moment about why that's so important, all elements of that, for those who can get to any or especially all of that, what the Triduum means, and why that's so important for all, all of us going forward after Easter. Well, the Triduum, I'm, you know, I'm still trying to learn about this as a convert. I'm still trying to figure some of this, uh, this out. But uh, the Triduum is just basically one big, long three-day prayer. <laughs> it starts on Holy mm -hmm. Thursday, and it continues, and we move into Good Friday, and it continues, and we move into Holy Saturday. And it's just a beautiful celebration of really the foundation of our faith where we, um, we witness uh, Jesus uh, on, on Holy Thursday, just a beautiful celebration. But then, then uh, the agony, the, the horrific um, reality of Good Friday, and then uh, Holy Thursday and um, Holy Saturday and then the vigil. And uh, it's just really magnificent in terms of, of, of everything we believe in our faith. It all comes together in this uh, one prayer 
these three days called the Triduum. And, and it's fascinating, the readings. It's very hard, as it was Palm Sunday, to, again, to go through the Passion. It, it's, it's, I don't know about other people, but it's always painful for me to go through that. And I guess it should be, right? We should go through the pain, oh, yeah. realizing and hearing again, reliving it. But you know a lot about the Shroud. And I, it always gets me when the apostles ran to the tomb, when, when Mary Magdalene told them, and they ran inside, looked, and when they saw, they believed. And I thought, you know what? They had to draw, draw out of that scripture what they saw instead of when they saw, they believed. Tell people listening to us what they saw. Well, they saw the empty tomb, and then they saw the two burial cloths. Uh, one was probably the face cloth, but the other was the shroud that the body of Jesus was wrapped in. And uh, they were called winding sheets. They still are today in the Jewish faith. When uh, people of the Jewish faith die, they are wrapped in what is called a winding sheet, and they are, uh, they are buried in that winding sheet. And the Jewish tradition was always that uh, they would be buried in the finest of linens because they were about to meet God face to face. Mm. And so when the apostles uh, saw the empty tomb, at one end where it was the holy winding sheet, uh, wrapped up uh, in on on one end, and on this cloth uh, was uh, is all of the what some people call it the fifth gospel. It is uh, the 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 shroud is absolutely incredible. It is uh, fourteen feet by three and a half inches. It is um, made of very fine hand twisted flax. Uh, they're able to measure the height of the man in the in the cloth, and there's no doubt that the man in the cloth was crucified. He was uh, five foot 10. There are uh, two nail wounds in the feet. Uh, his legs were not broken. There are whip marks uh, from uh, his neck uh, to his ankles, about 120 of those. Mm. Uh, his head was covered with puncture wounds. Uh, there was a side wound, which uh, science tells us occurred after death. And uh, the uh, hands, uh, there were nail wounds in the wrists. Um, and uh, no thumbs visible. It's really interesting. If anybody goes back and looks at the shroud and looks at the hand of Jesus, you cannot see the thumbs. But when the nails are, are put into the wrist, it hits a, a nerve there that really, uh, it, it basically disables the thumb. So when the hands are laid flat, you cannot see the thumb. So, so that's very clear. Uh, there's no trace. A lot of people think that the shroud is a, is a fake. They think it's a painting. They think it's a forgery. But there is no trace of paint or ink or dye or pigment of any kind. And this, uh, Sheila, is the most fascinating part for me, is there is human blood on the shroud from the actual wounds. And uh, wow. no signs of uh, composition. Our good friend, uh, Russ Briot, who's one of the leading experts in the world on the shroud, he says if there was a body in there, he wasn't in there very long. Because <laughs> uh, it, it was, uh, there's no uh, composition. But when you look at the shroud and everything that's on that, the science tells us um, some pretty interesting facts about uh, about this uh, this cloth called the Shroud of Turin. So a long time ago, a very and you can tell me the year because I forget. Long ago, there was one particular test done on one little piece of the shroud, the, the results of which said it could not be the, sh the, the 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 holy winding sheet of Jesus Christ, and that was proven to be later. That was proven to be a false finding, and ever since then, everything has proven it to be authentic. 
Why, Chuck, the enduring belief that that one test was correct and that Shroud's been disproven? Well, I think, when you get right down to it, I think people don't want to believe it. Because if they, if it's true, if what the Shroud of uh, Turin uh, tells us is true, then that might uh, absolutely mean that somebody's life might have to change. Mm. And people people don't want to do that. And so it's easier to debunk it. That was a 1988, by the way, mm. uh, when the, when the, uh, when the tests were done, but it's, uh, when you go back and you're right, Sheila, all of those findings have been debunked. Uh, it's not true. And they took a little sample. If you were, if you were to, to look at the, at the cloth and just imagine that it's laid out in front of you and, uh, they took the sample from the very upper left hand corner of the shroud. Now, this test, by the way, uh, dated it back to the Middle Ages. And a lot of people think that the test was actually right. But what's interesting is that that section they took it from was uh, actually rewoven at one point. When they used to be put it on public display, people would bring it out and they would hold that part of the cloth to mm -hmm. display it to everybody looking at it. And so over the years, it became worn. And uh, after some years, uh, they actually had to go back in and reweave some of the cloth. And so they took the sample from that area. And so um, it, we don't know when it was rewoven, but uh, the fact that it was dated to the Middle Ages, that little piece of cloth actually could have come from the Middle Ages. But the shroud itself dates back to um, uh, Jerusalem in the springtime. Oh, wow. And I, wow, it's, it's all there. And people would ask, how, how do you know that? There's so much in that cloth, even like what local botanicals or, or local, I mean, I don't know if it's flowers or, 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 or other things from fields, but talk about that. What's in that cloth that really pinpoints where it came from and when it came? Well, that's the pollen. And the pollen is so interesting because uh, the, Pollen has a characteristic that uh, does not, uh, it does not disintegrate over time. So the scientists were able to go back in and examine the shroud. And from that, they were able to pull uh, uh, samples of pollen. So what they were able to do was to basically retrace the, the path of the shroud from Jerusalem to, to France and then eventually to Turin. Uh, by the pollen. Now there was a during the Crusades, the, the the shroud was quote unquote lost for a while. They weren't quite sure what happened to it, but they're able to go back and and determine the pollen. And pollen is very specific to certain parts of the world. And so what's so interesting to me is there was some pollen in the shroud and pollen on the shroud that dates back to one place at one time. And it dates back to Jerusalem in the springtime. And so I, I find that absolutely wow. fascinating that so, the scientists can go back and find the pollen and then analyze it and really go back and determine where the shroud uh, has been based upon the pollen they found in the shroud. And then, Chuck, when you put that together with what you described in the image of the man wrapped inside the, sh the shroud, it's... It's stunning how it matches what the shroud shows and scientists have proven this part here shows this, this part here shows the, you know, uh, the side was lacerated or pierced, uh, the, the, the wrist, the, the thumb tucked in because of the, nail, the nails that went through the wrist and so on. And every place that 
the Bible, the biblical account, the scriptural account of what happened to Christ is just absolutely right there shown and proven on the shroud. How could it be anybody else? I mean, as you say, to believe this, one might have to change their their lives, but you, it just is um, it's impossible for me to think that you can see all of the, of the proven facts of the shroud and not realize there's no way this is not, to use a double negative, Jesus Christ wrapped in the shroud after taken down from the cross. Well, and then I started to mention the blood a little bit earlier, but there's actual human blood on the shroud. And the other really interesting thing about the shroud, the image, the image is only on the very top level uh, of of the shroud. It does not go all the way through. So literally, uh, somebody could take a razor blade and you could shave off uh, the image of the shroud. It's that it's that smaller on the on the microfibers of the of the cloth. Wow. And so so I find that very interesting. So but um, when you're we, we were in Turin uh, when it was on public display as part of the documentary we did uh, called the Holy Winding Sheet, as you mentioned, we went over to Turin. And uh, when you're up close to it, you can see it if you know what you're looking for. You can see uh, the, you can see the the, the, the two sides of, of, of Jesus's body, and uh, but it's a little blurry. And so, what was interesting to me, it was in the cathedral there in Turin, and I went into the back of the the cathedral, and just wanted to see it from kind of a wide angle uh, lens. And you can see it much. Uh, you can see the images much uh, clearer when you're back a little ways. But I was sitting there and, and praying, Sheila, and um, looking at, at the cloth and realizing that the blood on the cloth is the blood that Jesus Christ shed for you and for me. Wow. It's right there on this cloth. The interesting thing about the about the blood, the type is uh, AB. Mm-hmm. And when you go back and look at the Eucharistic miracles all around the world, they're still going on. Laziano in Italy in 750, I think, was the year. It's probably the most uh, famous, or at least one of the most famous Eucharistic miracles, where the priest, uh, you know, celebrating Mass, did not believe that he was consecrating the 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 host and and the wine that that would become the body and blood of Jesus and as he was consecrating it it changed it changed into into flesh and it changed into blood and the blood type in every eucharistic miracle in the world is ab wow and when they when they've gone back in and actually analyzed the flesh it's heart muscle and so to me, when you start to connect the dots between the Eucharist and what Jesus told us about the Eucharist, that it would become his body and blood, soul and divinity. And when you go back into the Eucharistic miracles and you start to analyze that with what he has told us, you connect the dots and you begin to recognize that, my gosh, look what this, this man named Jesus did for you and did for me. And the blood he shed is on that cloth. Well, I, I, that's so stunning every time I hear it. It just never, ever, ever fails to stun. 
and, and, and then years of talking with you about this and every time something new came up or maybe I heard it for the first time or learned it for the first time, Chuck, it blew me away. All of, all of it does all the time. When you started talking about what, what was coming out of that, then the latest scientific laboratory testing and so forth, the theories, the ideas of how this image did get on the cloth. When you say fast, it's fascinating. When you say that the image is not on the underside, which would have touched the flesh, the body, it, it wrapped, but instead is on the top. And you were the first person I ever heard it from, how that image might have by the emanation of a powerful force come through that cloth and then been impressed upon the top layer of that. Talk about that. Well, I, when I when I talk about this, I think about the resurrection. It was it was um, like a like an atomic bomb. It was like a nuclear explosion, and it was like, woof, and and the body was resurrected. The image was on the cloth, and Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And it was like a, a scientist used the use the term. They used like a nuclear explosion, um, and uh, that 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 that's what happened in the body. And it came from from uh, from the, the, the length, the width, the depth of the body. It, it wasn't kind of just part of the body. It came from every part of the body. And it was, it was radiated onto, onto that cloth. And um, when, you, when you start to, to analyze this, when you start to get into the nitty gritty, into the weeds, so to speak, it's just absolutely amazing. And I don't know, I don't know how you uh, cannot believe <laughs> when you mm -hmm. start to, when you start to read about um, about this, uh, as I mentioned, it's been the shroud has been called the fifth gospel. When you start to go back in and read the details of uh, of what the scientists can discover on this this piece of cloth is absolutely extraordinary. So uh, there's a lot of uh, not not a lot of controversy, but maybe some question about did the Jesus carry carry the crossbeam over both shoulders? Did he? Did he uh, carry it? And uh, the one I like, always like, is um, Dr. Barbet. He was a French surgeon who went back and analyzed the shroud. And I don't know how they do it, but they're able to go back in and look at one of the shoulders, and they can see where the where the crossbeam rubbed the shoulder. Wow. And uh, and he he uses the image when he was a a young man. He worked on the railroad, and so they were moving railroad ties. And the way they moved railroad ties is one person would pick up would pick up with a railroad tie and actually put it and balance it on one shoulder with one arm over it and then mm. move the railroad, the railroad ties. No. And so that's what he thinks happened based upon his scientific study of the shroud. I find that fascinating that somebody Thank can go you. back and, and look at, at the shoulder and see where the, where the cross scraped, uh, scraped uh, the Lord's shoulder raw. Oh, yeah. You can see everything on there. You can see where the crown of thorns pierced his head. You can see where that drew blood and it came down his forehead and different parts of his face. You can see where blood from, from being crucified with both arms. You can see where that ran down while he was on the cross, down the, the forearms. You can see everything we see in all of the, the great artwork over the centuries of Christ on the cross. You can see all of that, the pure the soldier piercing his side just to, to be sure. I mean, he, he appeared to be dead and he pierced his side and indeed he was and blood and water came forth, but that's on the shroud. 
and all of it is all of it you know and as you say his very height in his image and i know they've done 3d imaging of what this man may have looked like with the beard his hair his facial features and all that that's another matter what is so important to us in this conversation is the blood and then as you say the eucharistic miracles have always, always shown in testing that it, that it was the same type of blood, type AB. I find it fascinating, Chuck, when you say that the, when it's been, say, a Eucharistic miracle, and then they've tested for flesh in the Eucharistic miracle along with the blood, the flesh is from the heart muscle. And I've just recently learned that for the first time, and now you affirm that when you say that. The last time, I think it was a doctor who, if I have this right, wasn't even told where this tissue came from. And he said, well, this is from, this is from a living heart. And I thought that was so fascinating. Therefore, you know, Chuck, this being a Eucharistic miracle, one thinks immediately of the Eucharist and the receiving communion, receiving the Eucharist, Eucharistic adoration, kneeling before the Lord, if, if it's exposed Eucharist in the, bless, in the monstrance, or even in the tabernacle, reserve blessed sacrament in the tabernacle, Eucharistic presence in communion, what we receive, who we adore, who we are in front of. Sometimes, I think I've said this to you before on radio, but Chuck, sometimes I think in the world today with the cynicism and prove it to me or show it to me, if people went into, let's say, an adoration chapel, and they knelt down and, and there was a monstrance and there was the Eucharist in the middle of the monstrance, as always. If, if, there was, if there would be a hologram in front of that monstrance of Jesus, then they would, they, their jaw would drop, they would be stunned, they would believe, they would see. But it's, it's believing without seeing him in a hologram or standing there in person with eyes of faith that we truly can see. And he, everything you're telling us, it's like he has given us all this. He gave us all this evidence in the shroud and in these miracles all over the world that are Eucharistic miracles. So it's, you know, are you now going to believe is, is your choice? Well, and that comes back to the question. Um, I mean, the, the reality is that um, the man in the shroud is Jesus Christ or he's not. And if he's not, who is he? <laughs> I mean, it's a crucified right. man. There's no doubt about that. And so just, um, is Jesus who he says he is? That's what it comes back to. And uh, people, um, it, if, um, if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, he is asking us to, to follow him. He is asking us to worship him. And sometimes for some people, you know what, Sheila, that's just too difficult. Mm. Wow. That's just uh, so sad because we have this one chance and nobody knows how long it's going to be. Some people uh, want to, even who might want to like later on, okay, uh, it's like, uh, Lord, please give me faith, but not yet. Was that Augustine? It was, you know, I want to I live my life the way I am right now, party some more, have a good time, have the, all the pleasures. And then, you know, like later on, and then I'll, and then I'll convert. Uh, we, we can't play that game. Who knows? Uh, who knows? But we've got to always be ready. And when you tell us, Chuck Neff, how much there is on the Shroud of Turin to believe, Jesus left us that for a reason. Why else would he leave so much, want us to see his image crucified in the holy winding sheet, the Shroud of Turin, and give us the Eucharistic miracles he does? If not to call us, do you, do you see? 
do you believe? And, and if we can't believe that, I'm not sure what it would take. But that's, this is giving us a new opportunity to reconsider. I've been uh, trying to read the, uh, the uh, diary of St. Faustina for about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I just get, I get through parts of it and I just am stunned at the words. And I literally spend months. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I was reading something in the diary and she said, um, I spoke to Jesus in profound silence. Hmm. I thought, what? <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you, Sheila, I sat with that for probably a couple of years. And then just the other day, I picked it up again and was uh, reading more. And it got talking. And this is what Jesus said to St. Faustina uh, in one of the uh, apparitions. If you don't believe my words, believe my wounds. If you don't believe my words, believe my wounds. And the Shroud of Turin shows us exactly what he went through and what he did for you and for me and everybody listening right now. That is so true. So Chuck, that makes me think of something I really wanted to be able to talk with you about that, that brings us the Eucharist. Of course, Christ gave us that. And he, gave, he brought that so Holy Thursday is the institution of, of the priesthood first, and then the institution of the Holy Eucharist to continue on his holy sacrifice of his body and blood. And of course, it's, we believe, body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's exactly what the Eucharist is, but yet no priests, no Eucharist. It has to be consecrated by a priest. So we need to appreciate our priests all times. We need to consider that and calls to vocations, but appreciate the priests we have for bringing us the sacraments. Yeah, and, I, and like you, Sheila, I know a lot of priests. <laughs> I know, no, I know you do. You sure do. Well, it was so interesting, too, because for me as a convert— I, I'm not sure I knew what to think about uh, the priest. I mean, they were the priest and they were the authority figure, you know, and um, probably a bit uncomfortable being around priests initially in my faith journey, just because they were the they were the priest. And um, I still remember uh, Judy, my wife and I went on a marriage encounter weekend uh, and uh, the priest on the weekend. I, st I can still see him today. Father Ed Schramm sitting there in a red sweater. And I thought, wow, priest wears sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it just put it put a human face on on the priest, um, and and so the, the 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 love I have for the priesthood is just um, extraordinary. Um, they are real men. They are they they suffer just like uh, you and I do. They go through good times. They go through tough times. But they are, they are who we go to um, at the most important times in our life. And certainly when we baptize our children, when we're married, when we're confirmed, when we get to the end of our life, they are with us on that, uh, those final few steps uh, beyond uh, this life. So mm -hmm. our priests are, are the men who, who walk with us at the most important times in our lives. And so I've just over the years have come to just an incredible appreciation of who who these men are and how important they are uh, to the church. 
We have to, but then it renews Jock in us, the, the appreciation and the need to go forward. Remember that, remembering that, recalling that, that, that renewal of our faith and appreciation for all these things, all these sacraments. And uh, it's that time, and and I love talking about the newness of Easter and the resurrection and that burst of new life again. And I always, every year, uh, intend, I say people use New Year's for that. I intend every Easter to just start anew because Christ does make all things new again. And not just whether, if, if you believe. Well, yeah, if you believe, it helps a whole lot. But whether you believe or not, the facts are the facts and the truth is the truth. Whether you believe it or not is it does not make it true or untrue. It just is. And I love the newness that I feel at the resurrection. And then, but Chuck, we're mandated to then share that with others. Kind of hard in such a culture as ours. There's a Washington Post article headline, less than half the country says religion is very important. That's a poll, um, yeah, just recently taken, taken that now it's dropped in 2019, it dropped to 50, under 50% for the first time. Now it's down to 48%. Now that's one poll who knows how, who they polled, what questions they asked, but we we got a lot of work to do, and a lot of people were unwilling to give that witness yeah. in public. Yeah, and, I, and just anecdotic, uh, anecdotally, uh, just uh, Palm Sunday in our parish, I was kind of surprised at the crowd. I was, I mean, you know, masks and social distancing, but mm-hmm. there there was a noticeable increase in the number of people attending mass. Mm-hmm. It was almost uh, like normal. And so I'm going to be very interested to kind of watch what happens over over the next um, couple of months. And certainly as we uh, hopefully come out of this pandemic and get things back to normal, what's going to happen in the church. I'm, I'm going to bet you, Sheila, there's a lot of people who are finding God in the pandemic because uh, they don't know where else to go. And I'll bet you we see a lot of people coming back to the church. Just my little uh, unworthy prediction. Hey, that's mine too. I've been saying that for many months and then I see articles like this and I think, well, okay, that's the Washington Post. But then in Alatea, you know, a Catholic uh, online resource, it had an article this, I just think this week, I saw it, that said something about the pandemic um, boosting the faith of so many, including young adults. Well, as we say in radio and television, Sheila, stay tuned. We'll find out. And before I let you go on that note, I mean, stay tuned for more conversations with Chuck Neff on your new book, Chuck, The Deal. I I love that you titled a book about marriage, The Deal. You don't have to give away why you did that. But for starters now, before we crack it open and start to delve in 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 future conversations soon, very soon, um, talk about the need to be focusing on and addressing and talking about marriage. Well, um, the, the mar- mar- our families are just getting bombarded. I mean, the attack is just relentless. I was, and part of the reason I wrote the book, or at least decided to try to write the book, was uh, I just uh, uh, some years ago just suddenly really discovered Fatima, and just uh, the message of Fatima just has really resonated deeply in my heart. And so, trying to live the messages, praying the Rosary every day, and and all of those. Uh, those uh, types of uh, types of things, but um, Sister Lucia was one of the uh, uh, Lucia was one of the three visionaries. The children in 1917, uh, and she lived into her 90s. And one of her last interviews in the early uh, part of uh, this century, she said that the final battle between Jesus and Satan is going to be over marriage and the family. 
Mm. And I and look look at what's going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what is going on in our marriages and our families. And so I just wanted to write a book to really hopefully inspire and motivate um, married couples to tell them how important they are to the church and how important they are to God, how important they are to their families. And so I had this story idea for a number of years. And so um, a couple of years ago, in a, we were in a face sharing uh, meeting and the question came up, so what do you still want to do? And I thought, oh, man, oh, man, if, if you put this out, then you're going to have to do this. And I said to the group, I want to write a book. And so once it was out there, I almost kind of had to do it. And uh, the, uh, it's everything I've ever wanted to say about marriage. It's, oh, wow. very distinct, it's very distinctively Catholic. I wanted it to be Catholic because I think the truth of the Catholic faith is what, uh, is what will set us free. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, um, it's uh, a story. It's a novel. It's a story of uh, one man who is ready to give up on his marriage. And uh, he uh, is coming back from a business trip where he is uh, trying to put together a deal that is just going to to change his life forever in terms of money and prestige and power and everything that the world tells us we need. But he's got to tell his wife that it's over. And so he he goes back to his hometown in western Nebraska uh, to kind of sort things out and just take some time and figure out how he's going to get out of this marriage. In the course of that, uh, he meets an old friend, an old high school friend uh, he had lost touch with. Um, after high school, they all went their separate ways. And um, the friend today is a Catholic priest. And so their two-day encounter over what's in front of um, our, our main character, Charlie, gets pretty tense. And mm-hmm. so it's just basically um, this, uh, these two friends going at it about um, what's important and what's not important and the importance of marriage. And so uh, it's getting great reviews. I've been humbled by the, by the reaction of it. So it's been really a very, very gratifying for me, Sheila. Well, see, that, that's your confirmation that you did the will of God. That kind of reaction is how, how badly people needed this. And, and I love the way you did it is so creative. Uh, there, there are many books, great books, needed books out there about marriage. And there are more coming out now because, as you say, this is the time we really need to focus on marriage squarely. But the, when you do it this way as a novel and you're in the life uh, the lives of two men, one a, a lay businessman who wants to end it, and in the other, his high school friend who's now a priest, and you have that dramatic tension in here. You, you did perfectly what you set out to do, and we'll, we'll break it open and get into it more when we converse again. I had to bring it up, though, because you know we're talking about sacraments and priests you know, giving us the sacraments and marrying people and how important that is, but marriage itself, you did, you have to have peace. I'm sure in your heart, Chuck, that you did the right thing in writing the book and in writing it the way you did. And the reviews are showing you this truly was the will of God. Yeah. There were so many Holy spirit moments. <laughs> I just, uh, you cool. know, you talk about the Holy spirit working in your life. And then there's times when, when you really know the Holy spirit is working in your life. And there were several moments when I, I wasn't stuck, but I wasn't quite sure where to take the story. And suddenly it was so clear what I needed to do next with the story. It was, uh, I mean, and I, I stand back a lot and look uh, look heavenward and say, Holy Spirit, what in the world did you do with this book? <laughs> so it's, it's, been, it's been really very, very edifying, gratifying. I'm, I'm 
grateful that um, that I was able to to do it. Well, I'm grateful to have it and to be able to talk about it with you and to be able to spread the word to those who need to hear it and spread the book because I want to get it out there and I want many, many people to read The Deal by Chuck Neff. And I'm going to uh, put up a blog post with a link to it as well. But I really, really believe everything you said, Chuck, about where marriage is in so much trouble and it's uh, what people call it the building block or foundation of society. It's so much more than that. It's the first society. And we have to reclaim it and regain it and not be afraid to speak about it lovingly. And I love that you say it had to be Catholic. And it is Catholic because of your belief. This is how bold we have to be because you believe the Catholic Church is the truth about everything. This is so Chestertonian. It's just simply the truth about everything. And so so has this conversation been when we talk about Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. This is the truth about everything. And I'm so grateful for your time, Chuck Neff. It's just always a pleasure and so, so enlightening and edifying to talk with you. So I wish you a blessed Easter. And you as well. And uh, you are so kind. I always love talking with you. Thanks for the opportunity to spend some, uh, some uh, time with uh, one of my favorite people. Listening to Chuck Neff talk, I thought of the Padre Pio advice, pray, trust, and don't worry. That all may be challenging, but these days, especially the don't worry part, because most of us have so much to worry about, or so we think. How and what we think are two things to work on in the way Chuck said he's been working on contemplating St. Faustina's diary on divine mercy. That's a good message. We'll continue talking about his book on marriage, so please share this link with others and invite them to join us here in the forum.